The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hey, everybody. I'm Mark Lamont Hill, owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. I am a professor, a scholar, and most importantly, a book nerd. I say book nerd because I don't just love to read books. I'm the person who loves to read about the book. I love hearing authors talk about how and why they wrote the book. And I love talking to other book nerds about their favorite books. That's why I started Coffee in Books. It's a podcast all about books. Every episode, I sit down over a cup of coffee with the world's biggest authors to discuss the most interesting, controversial, fun, and important books. And sometimes I just hang out with experts, fans, and other special guests to talk about some of the greatest books of all time. And I am thrilled to be joined this week by my friend, my comrade, She's a best-selling author. Her book was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Important Books of the Year. She is one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, Alicia Garza. Her new book is called The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When We Fall Apart. Alicia, so good to see you. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me, Mark. Oh, man, it's a pleasure. So as you know, we are a coffee and books podcast. We start off with the coffee. I I'm drinking a specialty drink from Uncle Bobby's right now. I don't normally do the sugar. I do it like once a month, maybe every other month. But I'm drinking what's called a strawberry cheesecake, which is a latte that also has uh, a little bit of strawberry syrup in it and uh, something else, that I, a secret ingredient that my barista uh, won't tell me what's in it. But it's really, 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 really good. And it makes me happy and it keeps me energized to keep writing and, and to stay on book tour. Oh, yeah. How about you? Are, are you a coffee person? I love me some coffee. And unfortunately, I'm a pretty boring coffee drinker. But my core tenants, I grew up, my mom drank black coffee and it was like diesel. Like I just never understood it, right? I used to load sugar and cream and all the things. But now I just drink it black and I'm a big fan of Cafe Bustello. It is the thing that I drink. I buy like six party size containers. Wow. You're hardcore. (laughs) do the drip. And I recently discovered that little filter that will drain your coffee for you cup by cup. Yes. I'm obsessed with that too. <laughs> so <laughs> if so you're a true coffee, coffee head. Yes. And if I don't have my coffee, I can't talk to you. It's really a thing. I, I'll be up at five in the morning, but until I have that first cup of coffee, I'm having no conversations with anybody. So, so that's the real secret to effective radical organizing, right? Is, <laughs> is You need the coffee first. We need a radical imagination, but we need to start with the black coffee. Listen, it's emotional intelligence. You know, if I know <laughs> I'm hyphy without coffee and I need to be more measured, then I, I really just clear the space until I've had my coffee. Then I can show up for the conversation. I am here for that. All right. Well, I'm happy to have this conversation with you about this book, which I was very excited to hear was coming out. And then I was even more excited to read it. I got to tell you, when I saw the title, The Purpose of Power, I was a little nervous because I thought it was going to be like one of those self-help kind (laughs) of like how to empower yourself books. And then I read it. and I was like, okay, this is what I thought it was going to be. And I, I was real about, what made you call it The Purpose of Power? A couple of things. I mean, number one, This book is really an opportunity to kind of pull back the curtains on what organizing looks like. So many people see organizing as protest, right? Or organizing as like what you do on Twitter or Facebook. So I just, I wrote this book because I needed to get under the hood with folks about what it means to build movements. But the purpose of power really comes from a small, I don't know if it's a pet peeve that I have, but it's a longing that I have, which Mm. is that 
those of us who are involved in social change work or those of us who are thinking about getting involved understand that actually what we're building is power. We're not trying to just like make people feel better. We're not trying to build a utopia. We are trying to amass more power and put more power into the hands of more people. And that is what is going to transform people's lives for the better. At the same time, we're often kind of ambivalent about power and rightfully so. Power is so corrosive, it's divisive. But one of the arguments I make in the book is that actually we have to transform the way that power operates as we are distributing more power to more people. And so I wanted power to be on the cover of the book because I yes. don't want us to talk about organizing or movements without talking about power. I think one of my favorite pieces of the book is, or, or, or things about the book, is the way that you are able to kind of smuggle in radical theories, radical philosophies in ways that are very accessible and very clear. And there are a lot of academics who talk about critical approaches. And when we use the word critical, we're talking about power. We're, we're questioning relations of power. And you're able to do that in a way that people can read and are, don't feel alienated by, but also allow us to do the work of building, building the world that we're talking about. And honestly, that's a, that's a rare feat. You know, there are a lot of books uh, that have come out in the last five years that have been memoirs, that have been uh, reflections on critical organizing work people have done. Some are really, really good. Some I'm really excited by. Others, yeah, I've had different feelings about. And a lot of it comes down to what do people walk away with other than your own story? You made a decision not to write a, a pure memoir. You made a decision to weave your stories and the lessons that you learned as an organizer into a, a sort of deeper, more sophisticated analysis. Why'd you go that route as opposed to the memoir route? First and foremost, what you just said about my book means so much to me because I spent mm three years crafting, refining, crafting, refining, because I didn't want it to be a self-help book. I didn't want it to be the, you know, 10 steps to building a movement. Like I don't believe in those kinds of things. And as an organizer, right. it pains me sometimes when we try to promote shortcuts to things that like nobody has been able to figure out yet. So this right. 10 steps to power thing doesn't work for anybody and it doesn't benefit us. I think the other thing is I really wanted to actually write a book for, it's for activists, but it's actually not written for activists. You know, I say that intentionally because it's like interesting. You read, you read all the things about what people are saying about your book, right? And yes. <laughs> people, yes. And people also want to make sure you read it because some people are froggy like that. So they tag you. <laughs> you ain't <laughs> never lied. <laughs> And somebody, you know, did a reading of the book and they were clearly somebody who uh, came up in the Black radical tradition and they were, you know, in their feelings about the fact that I like didn't talk about George Jackson and because I'm from Marin County, I should know about George Jackson. I was like, of course I know about George Jackson, but that's not the point of the book. The point right. of the book is also to let people in who are not already a part of our circles, who are not already engaged in um, transformative organizing. And it was important to me to have a book like this because it's the book that I wanted when I was first starting out and was looking for everywhere and couldn't find. It was like I could either try to get up to the level of Angela Davis and her critical theory, which, you know, you have to read her stuff like four or five, six times. I'm still reading it. Yeah, she got, there's layers to the stuff, right? <laughs> and I also didn't want it to be a memoir because honestly, I'm about to turn 40 in January. I still have a mm. lot of life to live. I don't feel like I'm ready to write the memoir. 
but I wanted us to actually engage in a practice of situating ourselves in history. And I couldn't ask somebody to do that without doing it myself. And I was hoping that that would be a more accessible way for people to start reflecting on the ways that they've been shaped and how they are shaping the world and what that might mean for their role in a growing and ever expanding social movement like this one. One of the things you just talked about was sort of accessing people who aren't already quote unquote there. And I think that question of mode of address or who does this book think you are, who does this text think you are, is an important one. Like you said, some are written for sort of people who are already in the radical tradition, steeped in it, they know all the stuff and we're kind of preaching to the choir. Other folk are making sort of victory narratives for white liberals, white liberal audiences. Uh, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> just, 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 just saying. And you're doing something more interesting. I mean, obviously, white liberals can read this book and learn and, and get stuff from it. And people who are vets in the movement can learn something from it. But you're, you're not just writing to a certain audience, but you're also making an argument that we have to hold space or create space for those who are still going through this journey, who are still processing this stuff. Talk to me a little bit about why that is a project worth undertaking. You know, Mark, some of it for me is I've been in this work for a long time. BLM is not my first rodeo, but there is a, a unique character to the last seven years. And I was exposed to fights, campaigns, struggles that I'd never been exposed to before. Mm. The thing that was common in all of those things, BLM, Ferguson, etc., was that because of this intentional decimation of our movement infrastructure over the last 30 plus years, we've not quite figured out how to fill the gaps. And as a result, what we have is a lot of people who are getting active right now, which is really good. There's not containers to help hold, mold, and groom people to be the fighters that they need to be mm -hmm. for this particular moment. I was lucky enough to have some of those vehicles, and I can honestly say that in all the ways they grew me up, they grew me up. But after being in this work for 20 years, I'm like, you know, some of these models are really outdated. Some of these models are for a different time, a different place and a different set of conditions. And I, I do think it's important to, to have a time capsule where we start to write down the critical questions that we're grappling with, where we start to document our organizing methods and what we're learning and the things that we're having to unlearn, the things we didn't quite get right and the things that we yearn to learn. <laughs> and that's really what this book is for me. And it's what I hoped it would be for our movement. I actually do take some really clear stances about where I fall on things like celebrity activist culture. I take a strong opinion about- Can, can we talk about- organizing. Oh yeah, we yeah, can talk about it Okay, because <laughs> I, I didn't want to cut you off, but that, that was one of the things, because it's an interesting thing, right? Because. The ability to write this book and the ability to have access to these publics partly comes from the way that you have been transformed. You and Opal and Patrice have been turned into uh, celebrities. Uh, but there's a way that all three of you actively resist that. But there's ways that you also have to draw on that, right, in order to do this. So because so, there are people who will be like, she has a critique of celebrity activism and she's on the cover of these fancy magazines, right? Talk to me about how you sort of thread that needle, how you navigate that, both as a as, in your own personal life, but also as a political project. Oh, yeah. It's it's something that I have really been grappling with over the last seven years as somebody, again, who's been in this work for a while, but got catapulted onto a national stage and an international stage. And we resisted it for a long time. And it's twofold, Mark. Like on the one hand, I talk in the book about 
how our movements are deeply ambivalent about mainstreaming and how I get it, right? I mean, it's hard to imagine, right, that anything good can come from being on the cover of Time magazine. It's hard to imagine that there's any way to resist the kind of capitalist machine, right, of Hollywood and making celebrities out of activists. Mm. But what I'm arguing in this book is that actually it's more nuanced than that. There's actually many more layers. And movements, their goal is not to be obscure. Our goal and our purpose is not for nobody to know about us, right? That does right. not move us farther along the path to power. And at the same time, there's so few of us that break through and can give a dispatch about what is actually going on right, in these landscapes and what can we use them for? Is there anything we can use them for? And what should we not be using them for? So, you know, last night I was talking to a friend of mine and, you know, I was recalling all of the different weird things that have happened to Patrice and Opal and I, like getting contacted by Walmart to do a Black History Month commercial. And I was like, I'm a labor organizer. Like I could right. not there's no way in hell I'm going to do a, a commercial for Walmart. Right. But at the same token, right? We just I just got an opportunity to be a part of the Between the World and Me HBO documentary. And that is a powerful testament to the ways in which our movement is shaping culture. So should I just say no to that? No, absolutely not. We want people to know, right, that change makers, right, are actually involved in this process and that you can be a part of it too. And at the same time, one of the downfalls is that people get into this work because they want that platform. They want that profile. They want to be like a Naomi Campbell. Um, they want the brand, right? But they don't right. want to do the work. And that is all of the different layers and tensions of what this means. So what I argue in the book is that, you know, profiles are not a bad thing platforms are not a bad thing, but that pedestals actually are the things that we need to be wary of. And that we always need to understand, is there a strategy behind building a profile and a platform that can be in service to our movement? Or is it just in service to ourselves as individuals? That's where we should really be concerned. And how, how do you strike that balance? Because I think what, because I think a lot of people begin in that place, right? And this is part of what I think you're getting at in the book when you talk about not having a base. Because there are people who I see don't have a constituency, they don't have a base, they're kind of just floating out there. There's, there's so many levels of, of conversation happening in this interview, it's so wonderful. But I, I guess what I'm getting at is sort of, I have yet to meet a quote unquote celebrity activist or branded activist who doesn't make the same argument you make. It just seems that what they do is whenever they make a choice that we might find objectionable, they say, you're not getting the strategy, that mm -hmm. this is long term. Someone mm -hmm. could take the Walmart route and say, yeah, but now I'm in front of 30 million Americans. So when I speak out against labor exploitation, I got a bigger platform. Right. And that becomes the argument. And so to me, it's like, at, at what point do you draw a line? How do you decide where the line is? Well, there's a lot of lines. Number one. Yeah, you're right. Who are you accountable to? You know, for myself and for Patrice. Um, and even for Opal, right? We're all engaged in movement work, meaning, right, that we do, we organize a base, that we are targeting a constituency of people for whom and with whom we are trying to build power. You know, here's a line, right? I, and I've heard it too, and I've heard it from friends and people who I've grown up with in this movement who have broken through, who are like, yeah, of course, you know, maybe it's somebody who says, well, I am going to work with Donald Trump because that means that I have exposure to more, you know, people come up with all kinds of justifications. 
for bad yeah. behavior. <laughs> I'm going to say this. What is also real is this piece around integrity. And, you know, I could not do a commercial for Walmart and continue to be a labor organizer. And that's not just about my personal integrity. It's about the stances that I need to be able to take publicly. It's about the pressure that I need to be able to wage against a target. And frankly, like it or not, and this is not a conversation that people have often, but we just need to be honest about it, child. Sure, I could do that conversation for Walmart, but then when I'm organizing and advocating for domestic workers, for women of color, right, for Black people whose communities are being decimated by corporations like that, is my voice really going to be as loud? Right. I mean, we just have to be honest here, right? This is where I call BS on some of those justifications, because frankly, what I've seen from people who have offered those justifications is that it's good for them personally, individually. But when it comes to telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth as loud as you possibly can in every instance that you get to, you start to notice, right, that there's choices that people are making about what they say and what they don't say based on their imagination of the strategy that they're moving in absence of any community that is being impacted right, by the forces that you're cozying up with. And we do have to be honest about that. I don't have the answer to it, but what I can say is after seven years, I don't think that celebrity activism is a bad thing. I think that what starts to get milky and murky is who we're connected to, who we're accountable to, who we're responsible to. And on the flip side, I think for me, when I look at the next 10 years, what I know is that we need to engage in culture wars in the same ways that our opposition has been doing that and building infrastructure to do that for the last 30 years. That will not come, right, if we are largely agnostic about the places where people develop and design their ideas and the ideas that help them navigate what kinds of actions they take, what they support, what their values are. We have to contend for power in that space too. And it has to be an honest interrogation of how we're doing it and who we're doing it with. Is it possible for power to be distributed in ways that are healthy, just, humane, or are we in a perpetual state of of negotiating unjust power relations? For the next period, we are in a constant state of negotiating in an unhealthy Mm. power dynamic. But I think this really does depend on the strategy of movements, not only what we are dismantling, right, but also what it is that we're trying to build. And I say in the book, right, that there's so much interrogation that we need to do about what power is and isn't because we mistake, right, as Rashad Robinson says from Color of Change quite frequently, we mistake presence for power. Yes, (laughs) yes. Presence is not power. I talk in the book about empowerment versus power, right? Where people tend to lean on the side of like, well, if I feel good about myself, then I'm powerful. No, you're feeling good about yourself. And that's a good thing, right? But when you walk out your door, you know, the conditions in your community aren't changed by you just feeling good about yourself. It is the hard conversation that we have to have about the way our society functions, but it's also a hard conversation that we have to have about what gets in the way of changing it. And for me, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to get across in this book is that we have to do both things. We have to hold what it is that we are trying to take apart 
And we're going to have to operate in that space for a while. And it's not that we have to get comfortable with it, but we have to get nimble about it. <laughs> and then on the other hand, mm. we also have to step into roles of leadership. And that's the thing that I feel like we have the most ambivalence about. Because the way that we understand leaders and leadership can be so parasitic and so corrosive, we haven't actually done the work to advance a, a different model. And if we haven't done that work, then people don't have a choice of what they embrace or not, right? It's, it's, you either have this thing that is toxic and corrosive, or you have nothing else, right? So it's, it's yeah. built both at the same time. You give us a really important and sober assessment of some of those models of, of Black leadership in the book in ways that many books don't. I mean, many of us sort of, we implicitly identify that there's just, quite frankly, some fucked up people in the world. But you name it, right? And, and you force us to really consider that everybody who look like us ain't for us, that everybody who assumes a position of leadership isn't doing so for altruistic reasons. And coming to terms with what that means to have Black people who are not only indifferent to our suffering, but may be willing to enhance it for their own well-being is a level of political honesty and clarity that I think we do need. Talk to me about how you arrived at that, because you walk us through this a little bit. Talk to me how you arrived at that place through your own political work. I arrived there through organizing. My first real campaign, I was also floored that there could be Black people who were moving an anti-Black agenda, that there could be Black folks who were throwing Black folks under the bus just to get up themselves. And of course, maybe one would think that's naive, but I think the consequences of that, right, is that if we don't make sense of it for people, then they think that this work is not for them. They think that change isn't possible. And for me, I learned a lot of different layers around it. I mean, I talk at length about the work I did in Bayview Hunters Point in San Francisco for yes. a decade. And I talk about the nuances there. That work grew me up in ways that I couldn't have possibly imagined but it also made me smarter about strategy. And I never take for granted the notion that not all skin folk are kin folk. But because I've had those experiences, I build that into the work that I do, knowing good and damn well that there are people who are going to smile at you in your face and then try to cut your neck from behind. Right, right? absolutely. That is a part of organizing. And so what I wanted to offer here too, though, is to actually blow it up and say it. Because so often we're not honest about the harmful roles that people play in the process of transforming power. And if we're not honest about it, Mark, we can't learn from it. This isn't a tell-all book in any kind of way. I mean, all the specifics that I used, I used for the purposes of drawing bigger lessons. And so you know, if somebody was lucky enough to get into the text of this book, it means you really made an impact, child. Uh, <laughs> but there's so many more stories that I didn't tell because there's some things that I'm like, these are stories for us, right? Right. Um, but for the broader public to better understand all the layers and nuances around what it means to fight for power is important so you don't get disillusioned along the way. No, I think that's super important. And also so that you can be pragmatic as you develop strategy, I was thinking about, for example, this idea of coalition building and saying that there, there's a way that we are all, even among those of us who we think have good intentions and who love Black people or, and love freedom, let's even broaden it a bit, and justice. But there's ways that 
despite that, we can't just partner with any and everybody and that we have to make ethical distinctions, we have to make moral distinctions, but we also have to be uh, accountable to these bases. So for example, you talk about not organizing with the Nation of Islam or being reluctant to nation, organize with the nation because of all these reasons, right? Some are simply, look, this is a, there's some Christian folk here. But then there's this question of like, all right, we're a coalition of queer folk and that ain't their politics, right? We're challenging capitalism, we're anti-capitalist and the Nation of Islam believes in capitalism. I mean, that, that's their model. They want free black capitalists, right? But capitalists nonetheless. And then of course, there's the question of patriarchy, which I wanna get into more deeply. But it's like the nation loves black people and there's important work that needs to be done. How do you navigate that? So much of it, Mark, was honestly the work of building relationships because honestly, I knew about the nation, I knew of the nation, but I had never worked with the nation. And so what was happening was I was allowing all of my perceptions to take precedent over my experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's true for a lot of us, right? Like I, I was saying recently that one of the things I feel so proud of in this last period of movement building is the ways in which I'm seeing new relationships being built with like the NAACP and the Movement for Black Lives. And these are not two institutions that you would put in the same sense. Absolutely not. And even still, as they're working together, there's like a million things that they don't agree on, but they have figured out what they do agree on and where their interests align. And it actually does make us more powerful. <laughs> it really does. So I think some of the questions that can come up for people are, well, doesn't working with people who don't share our values dilute our values? And like, well, I think it's on a spectrum, right? Right. And if I'm going to start working with the Koch brothers, right? Yeah, we need to have some conversation about, you know, are our values diametrically opposed in such a way where anything that we could do together would be harmful for the people who we are trying to organize? But in this, in relationship to M for BL and the NAACP, who generally share the same goals, right? Right, right. Then yeah, some of those things can still remain as differences. You can still struggle through them. But is it enough to keep you from working together? It should not be. So those are some of the ways that I navigate it. But everybody is going to have to keep figuring this out. Again, this isn't a step-by-step -step book. It is a... Thing, it's a book to help us reflect on experiences that we've had, choices that we've had, decisions that we've made. And failures. And that we learn from them, right? That we actually co-create a new model of what it means to build movements in this time, in this place, and with these conditions. Do you think that the conditions that made things feel so urgent and made us feel like we absolutely had to do something over the last four years, now that they've shifted a bit, right? We, we, we've put a little time with Joe Biden as president, perhaps. How hard will it be to convince people that we still need to feel that sense of desperation and urgency? I think the difficulty comes from people still believing that change is possible. I think there's going to be a lot of disappointments over the next period and mm. already starting. right? And even I have been trying to reorganize myself, child, because I'm like, look, I said this whole time that I actually don't believe that Joe Biden or Kamala Harris is our savior. So what am I getting all of my damn feelings about when they're not doing the things that I knew they weren't going to do in the first place? Right. So there's that piece. But the other piece of it is I worry that if we are not able to eke out some real victories over the next two years, what we're going to see in another four is a more sophisticated Trump figure. 
And so for me, if I can hold what is at stake right? Right. And, and organize people around that and continue to expand our vision of what's possible beyond what's going on with Democrats and what's going on with Republicans, I think that that is a way for us to stay in the game, but it actually requires that we push even harder than we pushed <laughs> this last eight months. And it requires that we win some things for our people so that folks understand that organizing does work. Organizing does matter. Social movements do matter. I think one of the tensions that comes in here is that so many of us want ready-made change, right? Okay, right. so I voted, you know what I mean? I registered to vote, I voted, and I signed up for the text bank for Movement for Black Lives. Why aren't things different? Right. <laughs> That's not right. how this works. Right. Sometimes change is accelerated, lots of change is protracted, and really the, the issue for us is coming back to the purpose over and over again. One of the things that help gets us to that understanding of the slow nature of most change, the kind of retrenchment that comes with it when there's progress, you take a couple steps forward, you take a step or two back and you keep fighting is political education, right? Because you, you get a sense of history, you get, a, you get a sort of radical analysis. You got a lot of yours by organizing to be sure, but you also got it in school. You studied the fancy theorists. You, you got your feminist theory, you got your uh, sexuality studies, you got your, your anthropology, your sociology, you got, you got all this stuff, right? That we get in these institutions. But so many people don't have access to those institutions. How can we think about effective political education in the 21st century? And what lessons have you learned from being at power or being, for all the places, right? How do we think about that? Well, in my experience, I want to come at this from two different, two different angles. I mean, one, the way I came to understand the value and the role of political education really is rooted in the work of popular education that people like Paulo Freire really created a foundation for. And it's really the notion that the best kind of education that people can get or can have is education that helps them make sense of the world around them yes. and that places themselves in history. And so the work that I've done around political education includes, you know, developing popular education sessions around yes. how to understand the economy, how to understand race, how to understand patriarchy. I got a lot of those tools from institutions that were built in my community to reach people who were not like me, who were not going to college, who were not getting access to all these, you know, academic texts. And at the same time, I got pushed by these institutions and through mentors to say, honestly, there are people around the world who could run circles around you as it relates to theory of any type, right? And it has much more to do with the method of learning than it does with the content itself. So there's that. In my work at the Black Futures Lab and the Black to the Future Action Fund, we spend a lot of time making information accessible to people mm -hmm. and not accessible to activists, right? Like we're like, we have a lot of activist institutions that's important. We are focused on Black folks, 35 to 55, who've never been to a protest, you know what I'm saying? But yes. they've been part of their church for 30 years and they get involved there. Or they, you know, get involved in political campaigns by registering people to vote or volunteering, right? Maybe they're the poll worker. Maybe they're, you know, distributing signs. Like our work is to build more fighters, not just to invest in the fighters that we have. There's lots of infrastructure for that. And so what it means is that we're constantly paying attention to 
our assumptions about how people understand the world. We're constantly paying attention to the images that we're projecting about who we are, <laughs> right? So, you know, in all of our things that we do, you're going to see queer couples. And we're not going to say, oh, bing, 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 here's a queer couple. We're just going to have a queer couple. Right. <laughs> you're going to have people in wheelchairs. You're going to have people of different faiths. You're going to have people of different ethnicities. You're going to have trans people. And just create the kinds of containers that make you look. that make you look but also the kinds that you can see yourself within and then finally we've been doing uh this meme series right we do a meme series called what in the meme is going on here where we break down really complicated topics like redlining or redistricting right and we do it in memes and we have literally two sentences that explain (laughs) here's how this works and they're the great because they're shareable right so it's the kind of thing that my auntie would send me and say did you see this this is a really good example of how to understand this we're trying to build the kind of container for our folks where there can be multiple entry points and i think that that is also a function of political education to help people understand the world around them, to help them understand their role, and to start understanding who is responsible for the conditions that they experience every single day and what can we do about it. But so much of your story about organizing is is about being in communities, being physically there, being part of movements, being part of uh, physical spaces. One of the questions I always have as I think about navigating organizing in the 21st century is to what extent the digital space doesn't just shift the way we do this work, but maybe co- compromises it. I mean, I wonder about that all the time. Like your political formation is probably developed sitting with people, building with people, struggling with people, even doing political education in these community spaces, right? Creating these grassroots networks like you did with power. Like there are these things that you do. Now we're on Twitter. Now we're in Clubhouse and we're having these conversations. And part of me, and this might be the, the grumpy old get off my lawn man in me, but like it just can't be done in these spaces in the same way. Political education can't happen in these many characters. Like, I can't build trust and love in these types of spaces. Am I overthinking this? Am I, am I just generationally out of touch now? What, what do you think? No, I don't think you're overthinking or that you're generationally out of touch. It's something that I struggle with too. I don't have a practice of organizing on social media and some people do. And so I'm trying to learn the best of those methods, right? While leaving the rest. Mm. For me, you know, there's people who I think... <laughs> There's people who I think organize really well online, and there are people who I think are good resources online. And so Mm. I think part of our challenge here is how to make those spaces feel personal. Twitter does not feel personal to me. It feels like a galaxy that I enter into every three or four days or so, because I really can't, my spirit can't take it. I'm like, this is too much stimulus, right? But it's also, it feels to me like one of the things that we've been doing that has been working has been creating online communities that actually feel like your neighborhood. (laughs) And so they are smaller, right? But there's more of them. We don't need to create spaces with millions of people all in one space. That doesn't allow for relationship building. But the truth of the matter is, Mark, that social media and technology, and now with the pandemic, it's already shifted the way that our social movements function. And We have to adapt to that because technology is not going anywhere. So in the meantime, I think part of what I grapple with is 
can we create safe spaces online where people can build real relationships, not with avatars, right? Like, I don't want it to be, I would remember like a couple of years ago, I was walking around and somebody said, oh, that's so-and-so. And it was like some Twitter name. And I said, well, no, what's, like, what's real name? And like, right. do you actually know that person or you just see their posts? I'm talking about building beyond the avatar, right? Because mm. I've been doing weekly Zoom calls with my family and sure, it's not the same as being around the table, but it gets pretty close the more we do it, right? We kick right. back, I got my hair in a, in a rag, you know what I mean? Like you just start to let it all down. Right. If it's consistent, if it's small, and if you if you start to get to know people, not their avatar, but like their, their real person. And in this moment, I think there's enough vulnerability from being isolated from each other, feeling so disconnected that we can reimagine what digital space looks like and we're gonna have to. When you wrote this book, did you have any anxieties or fears about stories you told or names you named? I mean, I, I remember thinking as, as you were, I was reading you sort of, and you were quite gentle in your analysis of the Reverends Jackson and Sharpton, but you still pointed out the critiques that have been levied, right? The allegations that have been levied. And those are sacred cows. Did you have any, any anxiety or hesitance in doing that kind of stuff, in naming those types of names or offering those types of critiques? Of course, of course. I mean, I don't know how you've written like a million books because this book literally almost tore me apart. I just, I, I was like, <laughs> I don't know how people do this. I feel like you've come out with a new book every two years. I'm like, how is he doing this? I can't do that. <laughs> it's incredibly vulnerable. And, you know, I spent so long on this book. My mom died in the middle of the book. I didn't know if I was going to finish the book. I mean, this book is really, it represents a defining period in my life that I'm never going to forget. And I, at a certain point, was so anxious to get it out <laughs> that I just kind of pushed through it. And then, of course, a week before it becomes public, public, I was like, oh, God, right? But with that all being said, Mark, like, I tried to be not diplomatic, but also anything that I couldn't give layers and complexity to, I just tried not to leave it unfinished. Mm. And things that I really wanted to dive into because it, it needed a broader lesson, I really dove in and I committed myself to taking the L for it if I needed to. You know, I do name names in this book. And I also point out, right, that some of that is cathartic for me because honestly, after seven years of being told you're crazy, <laughs> I was like, I'm not crazy. This is weird. <laughs> this is right. totally weird. But beyond being weird, it's emblematic of these larger dynamics that we also often don't talk about in our movements. And that's mm -hmm. a problem. So if we're going to intervene, let's intervene. Let's have it out. But on the other hand, you know, with some of our sacred cows, as you say, our cherished <laughs> elders, I mean, that's a whole book in and of itself. I hope you write it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hope it gets written. I don't know if I'll be the one to do it. I hope it gets written. You like how I did that? I was like, yeah, oh. that was smooth. <laughs> I, I, I do. I hope that that book gets written because they are both quite complicated and products of their time and they have reinvented themselves. And I don't think that the Reverend Sharpton of today is the same Reverend Sharpton of the 90s or the 80s. And frankly, that's a good thing. And we all deserve to have access to that level of progression of our of our human selves. I right. hope that I'm not the same person that I was 10 years ago. 
and that maybe somebody writes a book about me 50 years from now being like, here are all the iterations the sister girl went through. And we right. actually like this one better. You know? Right, right. <laughs> Same, right? Same. It's fair game. That's what growth is about. I, I sort of intentionally decided to not start this interview talking about Black Lives Matter because I feel like that's probably what everyone does. And there's so much more to your story, even your origin story, right, than Black Lives Matter. It's not like you went on Facebook, wrote a love letter to Black people and became an organizer. But could you talk a little bit about what your process was in sort of thinking about for the book, how much of the Black Lives Matter story to tell and how to sort of frame that as part of your bigger story? Because it is a huge part of who you are, right? And or at least how we come to understand, to know you, um, but it's not your story. And that's what makes this book so wonderful is that we get both of those things. Can you talk a little bit about how you navigated that, how you negotiated that? You know, this book was such a therapeutic process. I mean, I hope that doesn't sound cliche, but it really was. And I thought this book was going to be about BLM. I really did. I was like, okay, well, you know, I got approached about writing a book and I was like, I don't know, I don't have time for that. And then I thought, well, actually there could be some useful things. For example, you know, we spend so much time doing myths and facts about BLM now there's been all these books written about BLM, but nobody from BLM has written about BLM, so maybe we should do that. And it's just not what came when I started writing. And for me, as an organizer, I really felt like my better contribution would be to share some lessons on organizing so that we can get through this next phase of what is gonna be really hard times. At the same time, I knew I couldn't get away with not talking about BLM. I was like, right. I need to read this book if I don't say anything about BLM. But I did take a lot of time to think about what I would talk about because BLM's story is still being written. And I didn't want to put a period at the end of that sentence. It didn't feel right to me. And it's not only my story to write. And I actually say in the book, you know, I don't, I didn't write a whole thing about Ferguson either because I, I no. really want organizers from Ferguson to write from their perspective about what happened and what's happening and what they thought then and what they think now and what's changed and what stayed the same. Like, we all should have access to that. And I'm so glad you did that, by the way. I gotta say, I'm so glad. I went to the Ferguson part and I kind of held my breath a little bit, but you were very transparent about how long you were there, what you did there, what your goals of being there were. And, and so you give us enough that we understand your role. Cause some, Cause some people will write you out of that story entirely, right? But then other people overstate their role there I appreciate the way you you navigated that, that you walked that tightrope quite well and quite honestly. I don't mean to make it sound like it was a cynical or 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 sort of, you know, you were being like sort of swarthy about it. You you were being direct and honest about what you did there and what you didn't do there. That that I think was super important and I think history will serve you well for having done that. Well, you know, uh, I, I have to give credit for that to so many hard conversations that we've had with Ferguson organizers over the last 10 years. I mean, mm. 7 you know, there's something visceral that happens to you when you are written out of history. And it's not to say that Ferguson organizers didn't get any shine, but it is to say that people have stopped calling. And it is to say that the work is still happening. And it is to say that we have struggled hard over the last few years about why are you getting the shine and we're not getting the shine. Yeah. And we had to land in a couple places, right? Like number one, I don't control the media. <laughs> number two, right? Um, we did build something. <laughs> and you know, and and there is a relationship between us, but can we agree, right, that we are going to be honest about how Black Lives Matter even got there in the first place? And so much of it had to do with the fact 
that people were telling their story, but they weren't telling their own story. That's how we got there in the first place. And it just so happened that where we intersected was that they were using Black Lives Matter as their banner. And that's something that I created with Patrice and with Opal. So like it or not, child, we are inextricably linked. And with that being said, I was intentional about it because I've learned from the conversations that we've had. I've learned from blind spots. I've learned from seeing with my own eyes uh, just the ways in which people can distort their role in history and mm. how much of an impact that has on us really understanding where we've come from and what happened. Now, there's a whole bunch of stories I want to tell about Ferguson, but I'm not going to. You know, those are those are ours. And if a Ferguson organizer wants to tell those stories, I'm gonna have their back 100%. And I'm gonna co-sign it and say, I've seen this shit too. With that being said, um, on your initial question, I wanted to talk about why BLM. I didn't just want to talk about the protests. I didn't want to just talk about controversy. I wanted to actually, again, pull back the curtains and say, look, at the end of the day, a bunch of y'all say we didn't do X, Y, and Z. You weren't there. We actually did do those things. I have receipts. My friends call me the Dewey Decimal System, my friend. I keep receipts and they are filed and they are organized. Don't ask me to pull a receipt, child, because you know I can. Um, and I wanted to desensationalize BLM in a certain way. I wanted to humanize mm. it. I wanted people to stop asking the same stupid questions that people ask all the time, <laughs> right? right? Why didn't, you know, somebody, some labor person a couple of years ago said, well, if BLM had been involved in the election, Hillary Clinton would have won. And I said, if that is your read of history, I actually feel bad for you. <laughs> I, <laughs> right. I really do. I don't, there's a lot of regrets that I have from that moment. But at the same time, I think that the story here is of the progression of a movement and of the progression of a human. And I hope that what that can show for others is to do that own, their own reflection and for our movement to keep doing those layers of reflection that ultimately will help us get better and stronger and sharper. You talked about co-optation a little bit of the kind of Ferguson narrative. How do you feel about the co-optation of BLM for multiple things from sort of rogue organizers who may be sort of assigned leadership roles in the movement who aren't to the way that right-wing media has taken up anything that happens in the streets that they don't like or that they find objectionable. They say that's BLM. In fact, if black people are outside, it's BLM at this point. Do you feel like where people are losing track of who and what the movement actually was? I feel that there are a number of different factors that lead to it being very confusing about what BLM is and what it isn't, who is BLM, who is not. And, you know, early on, we tried to make a bunch of these interventions because we were anticipating that lack of clarity would actually become a vulnerability that would be exploited by our opposition. And because at the end of the day, it also did feel important for people to understand what movements are and what they're not. You know, the, the right-wing narrative about BLM is not surprising. The silence of our movements about the right-wing narrative about BLM is. And I've had many hard conversations this year. You know, I don't think people understand the level of threat that we experience. And so much of it has to do with the fact that we let these narratives go unchecked. And in fact, sometimes we participate in them. I got some 
email from somebody recently who was co-authoring an op-ed. It was like a civil rights leader and a political leader. And they were co-authoring an op-ed about nonviolence and they wanted me to read it over and sign on to it. And I literally had to respond. I said, first of all, this is so harmful. This is so mm. harmful. Like, why are you feeding into these narratives? Like, look, we're not being violent. <laughs> right. The fact that you're even putting out this call for people to be nonviolent, it's like, shit, tell the militias not to be violent. You know, if you're going to put this thing out, don't put it at our feet and don't lay it on our backs and then talk about how you have the back of the movement. You don't. You're actually not clear about what your role is and where you stand. And that's not my problem to fix. It's yours. But ultimately, it could become your problem. And that's why you should be thinking about this, because today it's me. Tomorrow it's Patrice. The child next week is going to be you. And there's not going to be nobody left to raise our voice. And it's cliche, but it actually played out in real time this year. The president of the United States got on a national stage and put out a bullhorn to a white supremacist organization. And people didn't say shit. <laughs> like for the large right. part, people were like, oh, that Donald Trump, he's wild. No, he's dangerous. Right. Just because he's pumping up this white supremacist organization, but because he knows that their target is us. Yeah. He knows the target is us. Oh, it's 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 sort of weird how normalized this stuff has become. There is a way that if George W. Bush stands up and says, Proud Boys, you know stand up, stand back, whatever, like the world will be on its feet. But because Donald Trump does it all day, every day, it's become normalized. I'm hoping in the next era, we can at least, we will become sensitized again to this. Uh, before we go, I want to ask you a couple, of, a couple of writing questions. I mean, you don't identify as a writer before this book, right? I mean, would you, would you say like, I am a writer now? Do you, do you, not just that you write, but do you identify as a writer? I do. I mean, I, I think my primary occupation is not a writer, but I am a writer. And it's a skill that I have often used in the service of our movement. I've never written at this level before, <laughs> not a master's thesis, right? Like my longest paper ever was never as long as this damn book. And I can tell mm. you the first draft of this book was 400 plus pages. Ooh. Then they cut it down, child, to about half. And then, of course, I built it back up again because I was like, I don't like how this is redone. <laughs> you just put it on back. But yeah, this book actually, I think, solidified for me that I need to embrace multiple identities. And one of yes. those is as a writer. We'll add that to the identity politics, uh, Ben. You know, <laughs> writers too. What's your, what's your writing practice like? Okay, so I learned a bunch of this. Usually what I do, honestly, is something comes into my spirit and I got to get it down. And I don't edit, I just write it. And I usually I have like cadence and language in my head already. So it's literally a matter of having it show up on paper in the way that it's happening in my mind. With this book, it was a really different process. I didn't do a book proposal like people do. So I literally was like, coming in and out and all over the place. And I'm best at night, although I learned how to write in the mornings because I'm trying to write this book and work and do all the things. So, you know, if I'm up at night, it's usually because I want to drink tequila. It's not because I want to <laughs> write in prose, right? <laughs> you know? But the other thing that was really helpful for me actually is just jotting on post-it notes. Like I get some thought and I just write it down. I don't try to organize it. I feel like 
for me, my personal process is that I can get really obsessed with the organization of things and not the content. So I get the content mm. first and then I shave. Is that a daily process when you're in your groove? No, I, I probably have three day stints that I can do before I zone out or get attracted to something else. I can't write for days on end. I'm just not built that way. Were there texts that inspired you? You clearly read widely, whether it's critical theory, feminist theory, history, et cetera. Are there texts that were like exemplars for you or for the kind of book you want it to be? Not necessarily this, even genre, but just were there books that you said like, I want to write a book that stands in this tradition, or I want to write a book that made me feel the way that book made me feel. You know what I mean? Like, Honestly, the structure of this book for me comes out of my organizing practice. It's how I understand how to build campaigns. And so mm. this book really comes out of that. But influences, certainly. The way that blindness made me feel when I finished it mm. was a piece of what I wanted this book Ooh. to be like. That's a, that's, that's high cotton right there. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, the accessibility of Ibram's book, how to be an anti-racist. I mean, the accessibility piece of it to me, it forced, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it forced me to really explain what I meant by things and try and do so in a way that it didn't take me eight pages to talk about what racism is or take me eight pages to talk about patriarchy. Also, I'm like a big Gramsci fan. <laughs> It's the nerdiest thing you've said in a, in a in this whole, and this is a book podcast, and this may be the nerdiest thing we've heard so far. So really obsessed with Gramsci. So it felt important to me to get some ideas across. And the thing that I struggled with the most was what real world example can I pull that anybody can step into? But how do I also highlight the ways in which our common sense helped to shape the conditions for what I was working in? So I... I um, spend a lot of time on that in the book, and I'm just no. Those those are goals. So so, so we had blindness by Jose uh, Saramago. We uh, you know prison notebooks, Antonio Gramsci. I mean, and how to be an anti-racist, Ibram Kendi. I mean, these are these are extraordinary texts in their own own ways. Which brings me actually to my favorite part of the interview. It's usually my guest's least favorite part. Okay. <laughs> it brings them torture. It brings me pain. Oh. It is called buy it, borrow it, or burn it. It's starting, y'all. So I will name three books, one of which you can buy, one you can borrow, the other you must burn. And your three books, Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paolo Freire, The Prison Notebooks by Antonio Gramsci, and Asada by Asada Shakur. Oh, shoot. <laughs> one you buy, one you borrow, and one you burn. And of course, we don't really want to burn extraordinary books, but I get to ask them to do it anyway. Okay. I am going to borrow Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Okay. I am going to buy prison notebooks and I am going to burn Asada's book. <laughs> Let me tell you why. Yes, I need to, I need to hear the whys because the whys are just as important. So Pedagogy of the Oppressed, you're going to use it over and over again. And the best copy of Pedagogy of the Oppressed is one that is dog-eared and annotated and you get to see other people's, you know, geek outs on it. Prison notebooks you need to buy because you need to spend time with it. Like you really need to spend time with it. And it might take you a year. Like you really You need to sit with that. Yeah. Asada's book you can read in a day. And what I would do is I would put your freedom wishes inside that book and burn it as an offering 
to the end. Ooh, see, that's that smooth. That's that smooth organizer talk right there. See, I like that. I like that. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. I'm burning it for the ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> that's dope. I, I love all three of these books. Paolo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed is a book that I first encountered as an organizer, as an activist in Philadelphia, as a young person trying to figure the world out. And then I encountered it again as a teacher in training. And then I encountered it again as a teacher educator, teaching teachers how to teach and wanting them to take some of those ideas in. And then I've sort of returned to it as I'm writing, I'm writing a book right now on prison abolition. I'm returning to it. That book is one of those books, like you said, you have to keep coming back to. It's dog-eared, it's worn out. Just chapter one alone is heavy enough to just sit with. The prison notebooks, you know, anyone who talks about hegemony, anyone who's trying to think of theories of power, anyone who's trying to wrestle with sort of neo-Marxist theory, anyone who's just trying to think about this stuff and sort of how consent happens in the context of domination, you, you got to read The Prison Notebooks by Antonio Gramsci. That's a wonderful book. And of course, Asada for me, I wouldn't burn Asada, but that book is literally tattooed on my body. So, you know what? That might be that might be a good reason to burn it. I can hold on to it in a different way. Yeah, uh, no, okay. This, I see your <laughs> this, this, this is one of the tougher ones. I've given people really tough choices before, but this one might be among the toughest for me for all the political reasons you would imagine. But this was dope, man. And, and you did it masterfully. And I got to say, this book that you wrote is a real joy. Everyone has something they can get from this. And I think it's a book that won't just be here for a season, but that will really stand as one of the most important representations of what it means to be an organizer, what it means to be a radical in this juncture in history. So thank you for writing it. Thanks for hanging out with me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for loving on my book. Oh, of course. How can people get a hold of you on social media? People always want to find you. Well, yeah, just hit me up. I'm on um, Instagram at Chasing Garza. I'm on Twitter at Alicia Garza. And I'm also on Facebook, but not that much anymore. All right, y'all. I'll see y'all next week. Peace. Thank you for listening to Coffee and Books. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle Coffee and Books Show. That's Coffee, A-N-D, Books Show. Also, you can buy all the books that I've been discussing here at bookshop.org slash shop slash Uncle Bobby's. Or you can go straight to UncleBobbies.com. That's Uncle B-O-B-B-I-E-S.com.